everybody, this is Eric Krasno, and you are listening to the Plus One Podcast. I want to thank everyone for tuning in, and uh, thank everyone that's been sharing the show with your friends, and leaving comments, and subscribing at Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate that. You can follow us on Spotify, you can follow us on Instagram, it's Kras Plus One, K-R-A-Z Plus One, where we drop all sorts of different information about the shows, and about our guests, and little video clips, and whatnot. So uh, check us out there. You can also email me at kraz plus one. That's K-R-A-Z plus one at gmail.com with suggestions for guests or other questions. And I appreciate everyone that's been reaching out there. I wanted to mention that I have a few shows coming up. I'm actually playing at Antone's in Austin, Texas this week. That's August 12th, 13th, and 14th. The 12th is with my band, The Assembly, and Brandon Taz Niederauer and his band will be opening the show that night. Uh, the 13th, I'm DJing post-widespread panic. And then the 14th is already sold out, but that's Kraz and Taz. There's still tickets available to the 12th and the 13th, and you can find all that information at ericrasno.com. I also have a single that just came out. It's called So Cold. It's from my upcoming album, Always. And you can find that pretty much anywhere under my name, Spotify, Apple Music, the videos on my YouTube channel, but also on my IGTV and Instagram, which is at Eric Krasno. So go and check that out when you get a chance. Also want to give a shout out to Osiris Media. They helped me put this show together, but they also have a lot of other great shows that you can find at OsirisPod.com. So I have a legendary guest on the show today, someone that I have been learning from for many, many years, initially from the incredible albums that he made with the meters, but also gotten to work with him various times. He's one of my favorite guitar players. I feel like he pretty much defined a whole style of guitar playing in funk music and in soul and R&B music. Uh, his name is Leo Nocentelli. Uh, he's one of the original members of the Meters and has written so many iconic riffs that uh, have been a part of the Meters repertoire, but also have been sampled by so many artists, hip-hop artists, R&B artists. Um, so I get into a lot of incredible uh, stories with him and get into his roots as a musician. So I'm really excited to get into this interview. So we're going to get right into it right after we hear from our sponsors. All right, he's an amazing composer, arranger, and one of my favorite guitarists of all time. I'd like to welcome today's plus one, Leo Nocentelli. All right, man, I thank you for taking the time, man. My pleasure, man. One of my all-time favorite musicians in the entire world right here. Much respect to you. Uh, I appreciate that, man. I appreciate that. You have done so much for guitar playing, but really just like music culture and... uh I personally have learned so much just from learning your your parts and from your compositions and so many things. So I'm, I've been excited to to speak with you. So I appreciate it, man. You do stuff and you just do it and you don't get no recognition. You get recognition from it and favorable recognition. That's what it, if you get favorable recognition, man. That's what it's all about. You know? Yeah. And yeah. I, well, I, I don't. I love that. I don't believe anybody playing funk or soul music or or guitar in that realm can really talk about um, influence without mentioning your name and at the top of the list. And uh, I know from from 
from my standpoint in terms of coming up, you know, as a guitarist, hearing you play and hearing the meters play changed how I thought about music. And I think a lot of people, um, a lot of guitarists specifically, but a lot of a lot of musicians can say the same thing. A lot of projects and sounds, you know, specific projects, specific bands, but just a whole sound has come out of what you guys created. And I wanted to get a little bit into kind of the origins for you of like how you became a guitarist. Um, I know your dad was into music. Am I correct? Yeah. yeah. And do you, what are your earliest memories of music in your house in terms of um, what what you were hearing as a child, and then and what drew you to to start playing yourself? Well, of course, my dad. You know, he played uh, banjo and, and guitar in a, in, a, in a band called Louisiana Black Devil Band. You know, which was a local band that used to play at all the local clubs uh, around the city and in Donaldsonville. You know, up north. When I was about eight years old, he uh, took me to a, um, a place, a store called Woolworth, where they sell different things, cheap yeah. things. So, and it was a $2.98 plastic toy with four plastic strings on it called yeah. ukulele. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, so you know what I'm saying. Oh, so, yeah. So when he bought that, I like, you know, from seeing him play, I just immediately start picking out songs. Right. Just, just random. No, he didn't have to tell me anything. It just magically happened. And uh, like I said in a lot of other interviews, man, one of the first songs I ever learned, and I started playing the guitar was a song called Five Foot Two. Right, okay. It's an old classic. I don't even know who wrote it, man, but it's Five Foot Two, Eyes of Blue. Oh, yeah. uh, 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 have anybody seen my gal? Yeah, that kind yeah, of thing. Of course, yeah. And, and that impressed him and uh, to the point where I just... You know, it, it was a toy I was playing on. So right. he saw interest, saw interest in me in the guitar. Uh, you know, so he finally brought me a, 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 a six-string guitar where I had to find out what to do with the other two strings. <laughs> <laughs> and this was poor there, so I didn't know what to do with the A and the E, and the big E. Right, right. So I finally taught myself how to do that. And I just started playing, man. I started picking around and, and just uh, dedicated to the to, to the to the instruments, uh, I didn't know what I was doing. I just was feeling up, feeling it, you know. While everybody was uh, on the corner hanging out with the girls and, and drinking and doing bad things, I was in my room uh, stretching my fingers and trying to trying to make this card from what I what I heard, you know. And, and that was that's how infested I was uh, about the guitar. Were there particular p- guitar players or even just artists that you were listening to at that time? No. Not at that, not at that time. Right, right. The only thing I'm thankful for is for my dad. He used to drink a lot and uh, used to go around with different bars. And he sometimes he'd ask me to come with him, and he he surprised me. Yeah, I'd, I'd be pissed off. I'd be mad right. because he'd go in the back and pull out a guitar to make me play in front of his buddies. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I was like ten years old, nine, ten years old. Right. And right. I used to do it, but I was mad. But one thing that that I realized a few years later that by doing so, and I don't think he knew about about this or even planned on it, doing thinking like this, like it gave me the confidence to play in front of people, right, at an early age, yeah. you know, which is very difficult for for kids that's trying to learn music. They, they like back off, you know. I yeah. don't want to play. I'm basically a shy person by nature, 
Right. right. Um, but that gave me the, uh, the confidence to play in front of people. And uh, it just carried on until my, uh, until my uh, later, later in my playing. But I've always been a shy person. Uh, to the point where I had the confidence to play. The funny story is going to be in my book, man. Uh, there was an amplifier called a, a Fender Piggyback. Okay. He came out, had to the speak at the bottom and then the head at the top. Like that right. was the first time that happened. Right, right. So they had to do separate things. And uh, it reached me up to my waistline. Yeah. To yeah. The point, and and uh, I was so shy. Well, I used to play behind my amp. Right. Behind wow. the speaker where people wouldn't see me. Or hopefully they wouldn't see me to hear it. And I'll be playing my butt off, but I didn't want them to see where that's, I didn't want them to know where that sound was coming from. Right, so, right. You know, so it's a, it's a psychological thing. So I finally uh, got over it, but there's a, there's a bit shyness in me even, to, 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 even up until today. Wow, wow. Were you playing in school and playing with other friends or was this really just something you did at home? Something I did at home and yeah. just picked up. I started listening at uh, records, and uh, I was like 10 years old. Uh, I'm a 10 to 11, so I'm going to tell you a story, man. Uh, I was staying uptown on a street called Ganyan Street. I had a little reputation even at 10 and 11 years old. Right. And there's a little guy up uptown named Leo Nocentelli that, that's playing guitar. Right, right. So I, I'm riding around on my bike. I'm just a kid. Right. I'm all dirty, short pants. I had a cold snot coming out my nose. You know, it just dries up on my face. You can imagine how I was looking. Yeah. So all of a sudden, I see this this limousine come around down my street, and they, and they stopped me. I'm on my bike. And I remember I told you I was looking. Yeah. So he said, we're looking for this little guy named Leo, Leo Nocentelli. Uh, and, and, uh, and he looked at me, I said, it's limo. And I said, I'm Leo. And he looked at me and like gasped because I was just, he didn't think I was that a little kid like that. Right. And in the back of the limousine was Fast Domino. Wow. So I'm, I'm so, so they were looking, Fast was looking for me because they heard about me in, in, the, in the city. Wow. But once they saw how young I was and I, you know, they, they just pulled off, said, we can't use this little guy. There's another side to the story. You know, my reputation, I, I would say about, 20 years, 20 years after that, maybe a longer 30 years. So my reputation, of course, in town grew. You know, Leo, everybody yeah. knew musician and whatever knew. So it was a gig in New York, man. We played in Fast was on the gig. Uh, I think it was at the Roseland or something in New York. So Fast was on the gig. Alan Tucson, I think, Lloyd Price. And I hadn't seen Fat in a long time. Yeah. And I told him the story. He said, Leo, he said, that was you? I said, wow. yeah, that was me, Fat. So he remembered that incident and didn't really know yeah. that the Leo he knew now yeah. was that guy, was that little kid back then. Wow. So he remembered that, man. It really tripped me out. And were you, and, and were you starting to play gigs, like out in club? Did they let you play out in clubs underage at that point, like when you were a kid? Uh, not really. Yeah, I, I, you know, I was playing in front of people. Yeah. I remember I remember my dad, uh, first gig I had, man, he, uh, Funny story. Uh, my dad was always behind me, and um, you know, to try to learn how to play. So I, the amplifier I had was a two-track tape recorder. So I plug in one side, and then the, then sing in the microphone in the other side. Right, right. But at that time, there wasn't no such thing as microphone stands. You know, right, right. So I remember singing, and my dad used to be behind me with the microphone in front of my mouth with right. his holding it with his hand. 
<laughs> so, and yeah. I'm singing while he's behind me. So that's that's how much you know he's like proud of me, you know. Right, so right. that that was one of my first memories, man, of a gig that I did. Uh, wow. Like like that it was really a trip. And eventually, you you joined the Hawkettes, right? Yeah. And you were young at that. How old were you at that point? Uh, I couldn't have been no more than uh, 14, 13, 14 years old. I started. I had a reputation, man. I just was kind of a gifted little guy, right? That right. Play. And uh, I started getting uh, the first thing I did in the studio before the Hawkettes was I played on a song with Alan Toussaint. He heard about me too, right? Song right. called Yaya. Yeah, that was the first really legitimate recording session I did. Gotcha. So people started hearing about it. Art, Art Neville, who right. was his, his his band called the Hawkettes. Right. He had a song called Mardi Gras Mambo and, and the Shadooki Do and all those kind of things. And yeah, I joined him and. Start playing around town, you know, and a few that few trips on the road, and yeah, so so it went on and on, on and on and on. So I started playing with different groups around the city, and my reputation grew. So at this point, you know, you're developing your sound. You're you're playing with like you know a lot of New Orleans cats in in kind of a, I guess what you might call R and B in a soul realm, but you had such an interesting approach that sounds like you because you're playing like some jazz chords in there. And uh, what always drew me to what you did was rhythmically, you brought something to the guitar that was very different and very unique. But also the voicings, uh, you know, I'm going to get a little more into the technical guitar world, but your voicings are very unique to you. They're not like the normal G, C, D kind of thing that you learn in in guitar lessons. I, I wanted to hear a little bit about how you got that. Like, where where did that come from? And I know, you know, you probably, it was probably came a lot from sitting on your own and, and working through the guitar. But uh, were there, was it, were you listening to records and, and copping things that way? Like, tell me a little bit about how you developed that sound. I used to listen to people like Barney Castle. Yeah. Uh, Howard Roberts was a favorite of mine. Uh, uh, Kenny Burrell. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. People like that. And uh, I used to take and put their records on, man. And, and, and when you do turntables, or you could slow it down to like really slow. Yeah, like yeah. I think. And I would copy the solos. Right. And, basically in the different chord progressions that they would use. Right. And I just tried to apply that to what I already knew. And I think that uh, that enhanced uh, uh, my, my, my playing in terms of learning new chord progressions. And, and one thing, and when you learn new chord progressions, you know, as a guitarist, you know, you, it, it, drew, it drew me into jazz. Yep, yep. You know, and the first, the first, I mean, that's, that's what I really wanted to be. A guy like a Wes Montgomery or something like that. Doing a night, doing a great jazz album on guitar, right? right. And uh, but it didn't, it didn't turn out like that. I did a lot of gigs like that, but it didn't turn out like that uh, musically, musically because uh, I, then I started writing songs. I think that kind of changed, uh, changed my way of thinking about about the guitar. But the right. guitar, it was another attitude other than just learning scales and whatever. I started, I started hearing lyrics and grooves and stuff like that. So it, it kind of blocked a lot of the other the technical aspect of learning to get the technical aspect of playing, playing that to the guitar. Right. So it's just to, to writing, you know, and I, I, I kind of like kind of took over over me as a, as, a, as a guitarist. I started writing. Then I started doing songs and started pulling strings, you know, yeah. and uh, making them bend from hearing records and stuff like that. And then I, uh, one of the first songs uh, I wrote, man, that was in, I couldn't have been the morning about, I think we started, 
was when when Art Neville, we had a band called Art Neville and the Neville Sounds. Oh yeah, of course. We started playing on Bourbon Street, and um, that was the meetings right there. Yeah. But it wasn't called the meeting. We were called Art Neville and the Neville Sounds. Right. So, but there was there was a song called Hold It that that everybody kind of opened up their the set with, and we we were doing that too at a club called Avenue. Yeah. And uh, I just kind of kind of sick of that. And there was a melody in my, I couldn't have been, I had to be at least, before I went to third, I had to be maybe 17, something like that, 16, 17 years old. And there was a melody, man, just kind of in my head. And uh, I introduced it to uh, George Orton Zig, and we started opening up our set with this song. Yeah. And the song wound up being Sister Strut. Right, right. Uh, but that was Sister Strut was, a, was just a melody, man, I had in my head for a long time. And, and a couple of producers came in, Alan Toussaint, and actually wanted to record, and we record that one and a couple of other ones. And when Sister Strut came out, man, there was another one earlier that I wrote called Sophisticated Sister. Right. And a um, bunch of other things. And, and Sister Strut sold like about 250,000 copies in two weeks. Amazing. That was, yeah, that was an unheard of R&B, especially yeah. instrumental. Well, that's, I mean, to this day, the, one of the most iconic songs really of any genre, but especially to be instrumental. I mean, there I can't think of really another single that was as influential as that that track. Yeah. Know? Yeah. It, it, it's been, not, it's not nominated, but it's been inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. Yeah. It's been, it's been sampled by so many people. Yeah. I mean, it's like you hear it on, the, on TV and movies and stuff like it was recorded yesterday. Just a do boy, cause your boss is in charge. Trying to play big money, ain't it sad? Ain't it funny? You're so blind you can't see that you're really playing dummy. Gucci smoother than silk, cooler than an icicle, rough like a bully. I'm rolling like a bicycle, fresh like a virgin, calculates like a math whiz. You think you're bad? I'ma show you what bad is. Você não tem amor próprio, fulano. Não se vergonha, pensa que é o maior. Não passa de um sem vergonha, seu zá. Por si só definir sua personalidade Mas é inferioridade que você sente no fundo da... But that song, that song is over 40, 40 some years old, man. It's amazing. You know, but it's like, it's like new today. I hear it all the time when I'm walking, you know, every time you hear an instrumental band that's in the repertoire, you know. And I think the unique thing about that song, and it wasn't thought of, it wasn't planned, but it just happened. That was one of the first times, especially in R&B instrumental, if the bass got away from the, the normalcy, like playing one, four, five, six, you know, boom, boom, boom. If he got away from that. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't want that. That was taboo. Right. So here it is, a bass, George George, is playing the same thing. I had him playing the same thing as the melody. Right. Do, 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 do. Yeah. That was that was like unheard of. Right. And jazz, you you know, you heard it 
with a lot of songs. You hear all that jazz, but not an R&B, R&B music. You didn't hear that. Right. You know, so here's the bass and the guitar playing what we consider the lead line. Yeah. And that was very unique at that time. That became kind of a formula with Lettuce and a lot of the groups that I have is is like we love to do that combination of the bass and the guitar, you know, creating this, you know, kind of it's kind of becomes a hypnotic, you know, yeah. sensation yeah. from the groove locking up like that. Kind of wanted to get into that, too, of like how uh, the Art Neville, the Neville sounds evolved into the meters and also, you know, not only just the name, but stylistically, you know, was was Sissy Strut kind of the first song that really established the meters as a separate unit? Oh, yeah, of course, man, because it was a hit record. But that came out under the name The Meters, right, initially. Oh, yeah, when we recorded that, you know, we looked at art and said, hey, man, listen, this is all of us, you know. We right, need a right. co-op thing. So art agreed to changing the name and then yeah. called ourselves The Meters. The Meters was like, everybody think of Meters as parking meters or, right. or whatever, but, the, but in actuality, the meters was named after music. And when you came into to playing with Art, was he the first guy you met in terms of, you know, and then did he introduce you to Porter and, and Zig? Yeah, well, Art, I was playing with Art, and uh, uh, we were playing at a club called a Nightcap, and um, it was still Art Neville and Neville Song. The original guy was a guy by the name of Richard Amos, okay. bass player, left-hand player, and he went into the Army. So we had to get another bass player. So we got George had a little reputation around town. So we got George Porter to come yeah. in. And then that was this band right there. And there was a, a drummer by the name of Glenn. I forget Glenn's last name. Yeah. But Glenn died. Oh. And uh, we needed a drummer. Right. So Zig had a reputation around town. He was playing with Deacon Jones and a bunch of people. So we got Zig in the band. Right. And that's how the band first started as, as players, you know, and uh, just carrying on from the nightcap, playing uh, talent shows and stuff like that with that ensemble to the Ivanhoe to the recording of Sissy Strut right. to the Amidas. And after Sissy Strut came out and, and that song's being played all over the place, what happened from there in terms of, did you guys like hit the road at that point or did you guys mostly playing in town? Like what happened to the band once that single got out there? Yeah, we started playing, you know, cause you know, you get a little record out there, you start playing the, the chilling circuit, you know, yeah. we were a black band. Yeah. Uh, so we didn't play a lot of the pop, pop arenas and stuff like that. So we started playing some of the chilling circuit gigs and, you know, uh, on the road in the station wagon and a little trail on the back. Yeah, it was that that kind of life, man. So it was it was like that, you know. But you know, you're young and you and you're excited. You're excited about playing, yeah. and um, you you don't think about what it was, and until later on, I guess I could look back and say, man, I did that shit, right? You know? And so it, it kind of struck me, struck struck me funny. But I, you know, that's, that's the change we had to go through. Yeah, we went on the road and kept recording. Personally, did you enjoy being on the road? Was that was that? I mean, I, I know in the beginning, is it it's exciting, but was that the kind of like? Did you enjoy that lifestyle? Not really, and, and I think it reflects up until the day because I don't enjoy even enjoy it now. Right, right. But but I was young and I was able to do it, and you know, I was always a guy I liked to be in the background. Yeah, you know, I was always like the right song. So sometimes you don't get the credit 
Yeah. That 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 you should have, you know. Right, right. But you know that depends on on the mentality and and the character of the person that this is being, you know, th- what it's about. It's about this person, you know. In terms of you know the meters, there's a good part of, about the meters and there's a bad part. Yeah. Uh, about the meters, man, it's always haunted. The bad part always haunted us until this very day. But the good part speaks for itself. The mu- the music, you no, know, it's undeniable. You know, there was eight albums of undeniable, innovative music that the public heard and, and musicians around, like you and everybody. Yeah. You know? yeah. We didn't have any problems in the studio. I was the most scholastically, musically educated person in right. the band. Right. And I was writing long before the meters. Yeah. The thing kind of, it kind of fell on my shoulders. I gravitated to it. I, I loved that. So it was like when we would go in the studio, George, Zig, and Art, they would have some ideas, but basically they would wait on they would wait on me right. to come in the studio with what I might have written or or part they were written or what they could extrapolate on. Yeah, and, and and that's the way it was. That it was sheer camaraderie there in the studio. Um, and you know, if I, and, and the song that I wrote, man, you know, like people say, and uh, just kiss my baby and took a pie pie, sissy strut. You know, I personally wrote those songs. Right. But I can say this. Those songs wouldn't have never happened with Tom, Dick, or Harry. It had to happen with George, Digaboo, and Art. They were the ones that gave life to those songs. And I always always had gratitude for that and always gave them credit for it. You know, that that was my job. Now, when when we got out of the studio, we was like warriors, you know. <laughs> you know, and I'm not signing this contract. No, man, this is bullshit. Right. Oh yes, all right, man. We're gonna go to attorney. We're, you know, so it was like that, man. Yeah, and yeah. we couldn't that get together on a business level. Yeah, really galvanize the meters career from a from a business standpoint. You know, yeah. we was always on at on with each other. And I think I think the industry and people saw that that non camaraderie thing on on when we got out of the studio. They right. saw that and they took advantage of it. Right. You know, and then you when you want to stick stick with each other, but you know, it's like when you when you got separate ways of, of thinking about business, you had a disadvantage to this industry. This is a cold blooded, shrewd, you know, shrewd business that we all that we both had, you know? Yeah. And absolutely. you have to be together unless you're doing it by yourself. And doing it with four other people is rather different because you might not be on the same same page. One of the things like that you said, you know, of of the way that you guys specifically played those songs as a unit, because I've always thought of specifically bass and drums. The combination of of George and Zig is something really, really unique. And I, I'll, there's like a push and pull to it, you know, where where I feel like George kind of pushes this way and, and Zig pulls that way. Was that is there some, is there a way that you can kind of explain to the non musician out there of like what that is, you know, when, when you find that magic combination? But specifically with the meters, it's a matter of listening. Yeah, there's some some musicians that in the band with each other. If you know they go out on their own, they they go groove on their own. They don't care. They don't care to listen to the other guy. Yeah. You know, and trying to compliment the other guy. And I think that, that eventuated with Zig and George. You know, if, if George Zig was playing a, a beat on a on, on a bass drum, 
a really, really unique beat joint would jump on top of it and then, then do some other things on his own. But basically, he would stay around. He would stay around that groove, man. Yeah. And I think it's a matter of just listening at the other person. And so on down the line with me, when I hear that, when I'm li- I'm listening to them, I'm going to automatically be influenced by that too. Right. And I would come up with uh, with some rhythmic moves, rhythmic sounds, man. You know, and art, you know, it's, it's all the way down the line. I think. I mean, for some for a group like the media to do what they've done. And, and have the, the the reputation that they have. It, it, this was a this was a magical thing that these four guys got together and had that same mentality right. on a music level, you know. Right. And it was it was unstoppable. And, it's, and and if we get on the bandstand right now, yeah, it'll be just as like we never left the bandstand. Yeah. We haven't played together in years. Yeah, you know, even even now because of the telepathy that we had. Right back after this short break. So specifically, I'm just like like a song like let's say "Just Kiss My Baby." When you when you bring that idea into the studio, how much of that was was mapped out, and how much of that did you guys kind of create with the band on on the on the floor of the studio? A lot of the first the instrumentals, man, was like on my shoulders. But when we started doing uh, the, the fourth and the fifth album, man, Warner Brothers, everybody wanted to hear some vocals. Right. They started start writing writing. Writing for vocals. That song was it happened when we was at rehearsal trying to write for the album, the Rejuvenation album. Then I came up with the riff uh, for "Just Kiss My Baby," the whole the whole structure and everything. But Zig was who is a very prolific, clever lyricist. Right. You know, Ziggs heard the group man. He started coming up with the, with the, with the lyrics for it. You know, right, right. Feel like a king because I just kissed my baby. Yeah. And and that kind of matched with with the song with the body what the groove was about lyrically. I didn't know what he was going to write. Yeah, but it, it matched with what I was playing. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it couldn't have been Zig and I. Like same thing happened with people say. Yeah, song called people say. You could hear that. That's a guitar riff that nobody could have taught me. You right. Know, this my thing. You know, I used to get with Zig. I said, listen at this man, Zig would. And come up with the lyrics, you know. Then he came up with the lyrics for people say same first name as a song called Jungle Man. Oh yeah. And uh, you know, Zig wrote a lot of the lyrics, man. He was very, very clever uh a uh, uh, guy doing that. And I think everybody in the band recognized that and they say, Hey man, let the guy go. And would he kind of take the track and listen to it and write to it? you know, at home or something like that? Or was this something where you'd be in the studio and, and it would just kinda it would it would come together. I think it was spontaneous. Yeah, yeah. You know, he was just that good. Yeah. And the music I had I had the track down. I mean, I had the yeah. structure of the yeah. song down. Yeah. So all I had to do was play. Right. And, and he was such a clever and and spontaneous guy with lyrics. Man, he would it would be like on the spot right there. Right. And right. Uh, we wouldn't go in the studio and record it. Would be the next day or whatever the day after. Right. But right. we would rehearse and run out and run out what we were going to do in the studio. Right. We just wouldn't go in the studio and just start playing. You know what I mean? All these, all these songs were planned. Right. 
you know, before, long, long, long before we went in the studio. I wanted to ask a little bit about guitars and, and what you were playing back then, because I know in the very beginning you were playing a Gibson for the most part, like a like a hollow body. Yeah, the, the early instrumentals were all cut on a Gibson 175, ES-175. 175, and, you know, I got to admit that I've, you know, because even really when I was younger, I would learn off of the Meters records for my own purposes, but then having played the songs with you or with George or with Zig I've got, and with Art, I've gotten to play with all of you, and it was such a huge thing for me to be able to play with y'all after growing up on these records. But mm-hmm. one of the things that I used to try to cop was the, the not just the fingerings, but also the tone. I would always, I would nail it when I would get the middle position you for you guitar players out there. Not a lot of people use that middle position um, between, which basically play it, it's so you're the middle between the two um, pickups on your guitar. But then in later years, you you kind of opened it up. You had there there was a, a Starcaster that you used for a while, right? Yeah, yeah. Star, all that stuff that was done. Uh, the five albums, it was five albums: of Cabbage Alley, yeah, Jubilation, uh, Fire on the Bayou, I think, and uh, New Direction. Those those albums were all done on that particular guitar, which right. is now at uh, on the wall at the Hard Rock Hard Rock Cafe in New Orleans. Oh, to my, wow. my regrets. But it's interesting that you mentioned that particular tone position because another person that really lived by that because they saw me do it, yeah. heard me do it, was Al McKay. Ah, okay. That makes sense. With 325. Of course, yeah. Al is from New Orleans. Ah, I didn't even know that. Yeah, yeah but I, I never met him until, until he left New Orleans and went to L.A. And we did a gig together. He was playing with a guy by the name of Joe Higgs. They opened yeah. up the meters and blah 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 at this club. I forget on 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 Sunset Boulevard. But but Al used to tell me, man, that that middle tone, man, what, man? If you if you listen at 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 at, at, at when fired, like the earliest stuff, you know, like uh, Shining Star, that kind of stuff. He used that particular tone position, right? And then because he heard that on Sissy Struck. All that stuff was done. The early instrumental was done on that 175 in that middle position. Wow. And of course, you know, other guitars, they're not going to have the same, even if you do play the middle position, they're not going to have the same tone quality as the, the 175 might have had. Right, of a course. Different guitar, of course. Know? Of yeah. course. And amps, were you, you kind of using whatever was there or did you always have a Fender? What, what was, your, what was your, your amp of choice? Whatever was there, you know, I would ask if twin offended twin reaper with that with the guitar. That was the amplifier that everybody played. You know, that uh, if you didn't play on offender twin reverb, man, like you was jive, you know, something. Right. Shit <laughs> wasn't right, you know. So uh, yeah, then you know, then later on, I kind of graduated to whatever I felt comfortable with, you know. Right. Right. Uh, up until up until this very day, you know. And those early records, um, how influential was Alan Tucson on the sound and, and, and the arrangement of what y'all was doing? The, the meter stuff? Yeah, that? the meter stuff, yeah. None. None. Because he was never in the studio with us. Really? Alan never produced one song by the meters. He did a lot of the arrangements, you know, strength. And, and that was very smart on his part because when he was coming in the studio with us early as a producer, 
uh, there was a lot of, you know, arguments and stuff about what it wanted to go there. Yeah. I was a very profound guy. When I wrote a song, I yeah. wanted to go like I wanted to go. Right, right, right. And he and I, you know, we got kind of little riffs and whatever. But I think he felt that. He just had the smarts and the intelligence to back off. Yeah, yeah. He said, look, bam, let him do it. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that was very, very, very uh, smart of him to do it. I mean, I, I admire him for doing that because he could have forced the issue like yeah. somebody ignorant and say, hey, man, I'm the producer now. You do what I, you know. But that didn't happen. He just quietly back off. Yeah, yeah. So when y'all when got a record, y'all wouldn't see me. I'll see you after and you put some strings and some horns on, but y'all got it. Yeah, yeah. So like I said, it kind of felt, it felt all the weight of the music, man, felt on my shoulder. I just like I, I was just ecstatic over the fact of hearing my stuff over the the studio speaker. Right. Once I heard, I was yeah, I don't know what I don't even care about money. Who got credit for this? Who got credit for that? Right. Which I mean, it has its merits, but it has its um its disadvantages too. These days, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done that. I right. wouldn't have done it, you know from a business aspect and a financial aspect. Right. You know, I would probably be a multi-millionaire if I did things like that back then. Right. But you know, things happen the way it is. And, and I think the way things started off, if I did think like that, probably it would have pissed somebody off. Yeah. And uh, those songs would have not have been recorded. Right. And it probably the meter's reputation that they have now wouldn't have eventuated. It wouldn't have happened. So things happen the way, the way it's supposed to happen, you know? I talked a little bit about this with George, too. I, and it was impossible in those days to foresee what was going to happen with sampling and all of these different things. Publishing also was, was a, a weird game and it has always been a weird game. And, and, you know, for, for people out there that don't know about it, there's, there's mechanical royalties that you receive. There's publishing royalties that you receive that are separate things. And uh, were you guys aware of, of how that worked back then? Or were, did you guys have anyone on your side explaining those things? Uh, no, not not really, man. Uh, not until, uh, you know, we started uh, really learning the business and sampling, I think, kind of uh, kind of educated not only me, but uh, a lot of other people. Because when somebody sampled you, which there's over four, almost 500 samples yeah. of the meters, either individually, you know, or group-wise. In the beginning, man, you know, when they sampled you, there was the elder, like there was LL Cool J. Did, did two songs on a Walking with a Panther album. Yeah. Two songs, I think, with the world, another world, and another, another song. And they didn't want to pay. And and and, uh, and they said, well, look, I, I bought this album. I, I went and bought this this album. I think it was on a, a chicken the chicken strut album. You see, I bought this album. I paid $6.50 for this thing. So that's mine. <laughs> right, right. So what they didn't understand is you cannot make money off of somebody's artistry. Right. You know, you took that person's artistry or that group's artistry and made money off of that. Yeah. So when that happened, you have to pay for that. Of course. And that was the law. And we finally, you know, made that evident. And once that, and once everybody knew that, so when you got somebody, and you, you, it's, some, not, it's no such thing as stealing anymore. I steal, I stole it. I, they got songs, man, but there was a quadruple platinum album by uh, by Eminem yeah. that he sampled a song of ours 
And I have, I have yet to hear the song. I mean, I have yet to recognize what the hell he sampled. Right, right. There was nothing there. Could have been just a beep, you know? But so you find guys that do the level like him, and Ice Cube, and Latifah, the people like that, they, they're not worried about ripping you off. Yeah. You know, they, because they got too much money. They said, look, we'll take 50% of the publishing, we'll take 50% of the writing, we'll take uh, 50% of the math, at least you lease the math to us, and we'll take, the, take it off the math, we'll distract it, and and you, everybody gets paid. Right. So I think sampling is the slickest thing to happen in the industry, man, to a, a musician or an artist, you know, to have this stuff be sampled. Were you guys receiving the money from these samples in later years? You know, it was a godsend that we had, we was a student man and um, we acquired half of our masters. Got it, got it. Half of it. So uh, the deal, you know, that they made with Warner's, you know, like we own half of the masters. Right, right. Whenever there's a sample, if they, if they take and lease it, they have to pay the master owners on both sides. Got it, got it. So we get paid. Uh, and of course, you know, BMI, if you wrote the song, your name is going to be on that. Yeah. So you get paid for performance royalties, right. you know, and the same thing is publishing, you right. know. Right. So, uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's a very lucrative thing to happen, you know, and it happened at the right time because if it would happen a while back, we probably, when we didn't have no control on, over the masses, no control over publishing, right. uh, we probably wouldn't have got the money that we've got. Really, by like 77, 78, the meters really stopped. Was there a specific thing that happened where you guys disbanded or was it a long time coming at that point? You know, I can't remember the initial thing that really happened. I think it, it all had to do with business, but there was one time that uh, really messed the meters up when when George and Art started the, the Funky Meters. Right. And Zig and I were trying to pursue the, the logistics of what was happening to us. Right. We finally got to a point where we had the perpetrators at our disposal to really get what we were supposed to get a long time ago. And uh, I think what happened was Art and George were tied up with the situation with, with, the, with the people that was uh, doing the perpetrating. Yeah. Uh, and they, uh, it was kind of hard for them to sue. Right. Or to sue those people. Right, right. You know, because they were representing them and everything was cool. They were making money. Yeah. So why you sue these people making money for us for something that happened years ago, whatever, whatever. Yeah. But yeah. I personally didn't feel like that. I, I, I left the meters. I, I resigned from the meters and uh, said I just couldn't be on stage, you know, with, 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 with that kind of uh, mentality. I respect what, what happened. I respect what everybody said. I just yeah. had another, another opinion. Right, and I right. Didn't comfortable. And with, with with that, you know, and uh, I think Zig might have felt Zig might have felt the same way too. Right, right. So it might might not as uh, as profound as I, I I was feeling, but I think he felt that too. Right. So that 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 that's why you hear about the funk. I was a funky meter too. <laughs> you know what I mean? I enjoyed, yeah, yeah. enjoyed myself in art. Right. You right. know, you Russell Batiste. Uh, when that happened, I had to leave that. I left the funky meters and. Uh, and I think they got Brian Stokes to play. When did you end up moving to Los Angeles? I was on a road with Jimmy Buffett back in uh, maybe 85, something like that. Yeah. And we did about six months with Jimmy. I took Josh Leo's place. Gotcha. Which was, was, was Jimmy's 
all-time guitars, Josh right. Leo. Yeah. Josh Leo had an opportunity to make a lot of money with Tim Collins. Yeah. He had a song called Betty David's Eyes Out. Right, back right. There. So I got called to take Josh's place. So I did about six months out there with the Coral Reefer Band. All we want, and the last gig we did was in Los Angeles. And I had my wife out there with me. Yeah. And I said, y'all, we want to, I wanted to, want to move there. I said, well, let's hang out here for the next tour. Because I was supposed to go to Europe and all this kind of stuff. So I said, let's just hang out here. And I'm going, I'm going back to New Orleans. We got a notification that uh, Josh wanted his gig back. Josh, so Josh asked for his gig back. Of course, Jimmy said, look, man, it's my boy. You know, let's give him his gig back. So that left me in a hole with nowhere to go. I said, well, look, man, uh, give me, give me, give me, pay me for two weeks. So I don't mind up going, saying, getting two weeks pay nine, and that was it. So, but, so that started me, started us from staying, to start just living in, in Los Angeles. I didn't want to come back home. And I started to Los Angeles for about, up until about five years ago, about 35 years. And did you start doing a lot of sessions in the L.A.? Yeah, I had a reputation out there, and I got hooked up with a bunch of guys that knew me, like James Gatson, Clarence McDonald, oh man, uh, Wester Lewis, Nathan Nathan West, you know, Stevie's bass player. And, uh, you know, I started live and get with a few uh, uh, contractors and say I was available. And, uh, you know, I started, you know, I, I didn't do too bad out there. You yeah, know? yeah. It was rough, but uh, because of who I was and the reputation I had, it was, it was, you know, I got, I got, I made, I made some money and made a living. Well, uh, when was it that you guys kind of reformed as with the original lineup as the meters? Well, we did a few things here in New Orleans, the clubs around here. We, we was playing like every jazz fest we would play together. And uh, to the point where I think Zig, um, Zig was thinking a little different. And, you know, uh, we started using uh, us three and another keyboard player. One of the right. guys was a keyboard player, I forget his name, with Fish. Yeah, oh, Paige, yeah. And that was it. Yeah, yeah, Paige, that worked out pretty cool. Yeah. Sort of like what, sort of like what, what the foundation of funk right. doing. With yeah. your, you know, dude, like they used you. Yeah, yeah. Just, uh, my man with the, widespread panic you yeah, know yeah and they'll do that they'll do things like that but um we'd get together every now and then man we'd break up and then somebody come up with enough money and and, and we'd do that you know and the yeah. last thing, last time we played together was uh at the grammy when we when we went when we got not we gave us the grammy lifetime achievement award right right so we was on this you know there's a video out there we was all four of us was on the stage together Right. That was the last time we physically played together. Wow, I mean that's kind of a, a big moment. Um, yeah, yeah, that was 2018. I'm actually looking yeah, at it right yeah, now. Yeah, that was the last time we all four of us were on the stage together. And you know, I as as time went on, and and George has definitely been kind of become like a guy in the jam world where he's jamming with you know all all different people all the time. And one of the things that you know, looking back at you guys' catalog, is you guys were you know, playing, you know, in the R&B circuit and making R&B and pop and soul and all the, the, and funk records. But, you know, you always also were kind of one of the first jam bands, you know, I don't really love that term, but, you know, just in terms of the whole scene and what it's become, um, 
you know, the, all of those fans of, you know, from fish to lettuce or whatever, embrace the meters because you guys were one of the first bands. Like I remember hearing ain't no use as a, as a kid. And like, there's like a 10 minute version of that song where you guys are going and there wasn't many bands or any bands that I can think of doing that at that time. Jamming like I, I was in organized, unorganized playing. Right. Right. If that makes sense. I don't know. Either got something unorganized, but some some kind of way if you jam it right, it becomes organized. Well, man, I appreciate you, man, and I appreciate the amount of influence that you've had on music and especially on me and 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 my groups. And I, I can't imagine a world without your playing, without the meters. You know what well, I'm saying? Well, thank you, man. And likewise, man, I'm very proud of you. Uh, I follow I've been following your career and I know what you and I know what you're doing and I know what you're about. And I also more importantly, know what you're capable of. I appreciate that, man. It means a lot. You haven't got there yet. Yeah, just, I'm always working. I'm always working, try to get better, man, you know? To your I'm not talking about talent-wise. Yeah. I'm talking about you, because you got the key. Your capability is there. It's undeniable. Yeah. But, but the industry haven't let you get there yet. Yeah. And when that door opens, you'll know it, and then you, you're going to walk through. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, to me, you know, I, I as long as I'm making I, I, every day, I make something that I'm happier about the quality of it. So for me, it's all about that. And when if people notice it, then that's a beautiful thing, man. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I've just but, been kind of concentrating on uh, writing and getting songs placed, and uh, uh, a lot of things I do them, and I could do them well. But I'm like semi-retired. I, I don't have the passion for it anymore. Yeah. You know, I don't, you know, like getting a group together, rehearsing. Hey, man, could you make the gig? Yeah, come on, let's do it. We'll be playing this play. Hey, man, how much can you pay? Can you pay me this? No. Like, I, you know, I don't I don't want to do that no more. Yeah, you know? yeah, I hear you, and, man. And, and I, try, I try to select things that, that, that I don't have to go through all of that. Yeah. Well, but if I do go through it, I get paid for it, you know? <laughs> you know what yeah, I'm saying? 100%. So, yeah, so I've been uh, busy. Uh, I have an album coming out. And that's a story within itself, right? Yeah. There was an album, uh, uh, not an album, but a master I was recording over 50 years ago. Wow. James Black. Yeah. Uh, Joy did a couple of tracks, and then Alan. And it's a country and western. Oh, wow. Album. If wow. you can imagine me. Yeah. Playing funk, the funk guy. Yeah. Doing country and western. Wow. Yeah, because I was listening to a lot of James Taylor back then, uh, Sweet Baby James and all that shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so I started recording this thing, and it's very raw. And uh, it's like unfinished, but it's, it was audible enough to be considered an album, you know? Right. These days. So when Katrina happened, I used to keep my stuff that I own and, and, and see things. Katrina happened. And for some kind of way, somebody went in there and took the took the the, the, the master the quarter inch master. I didn't even know the thing. I thought it was after the dream, I thought it was over, done. I didn't remember the song anymore. So somebody took got 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 them. They had a storage space in Los Angeles, and it stood there for all these years. You know, all these years, man. And uh, the guy lost the storage compartment. Right. So. When you lose things like that, people will go and make a bid for it. Yep. And buy what's ever in it. Right. So this flea market got the tapes. Wow. 
there was several meter tapes, uh, quarter-inch meter tape, and mine. Crazy. So the guy saw the tape spread out on the table at the free market, and he yeah. saw it, and he, and he bought the tapes. Wow. He bought them. So, so he's saying, when I got these tapes, what the hell am I going to do with them? So he couldn't put them out. Of course, yeah. He wouldn't be able to get no license to put them out like that. And then the way he got them. So he, he found out he, he found out to contact me. He said, Leo, I got I got you quarter inch map. I said, What? That wow. you did at see at, at Cosmo Studio on Cancer. Yeah. I said, What? I said, Man, I didn't know how I did that thing still exist. So then he took it further and played it for a record company called In the Attic. Yeah. Records, which which kind of catered to kind of nostalgia. Yep, I know of it, yeah. You know, you know, you know all of them? Yep. Anyway, um, they said, listen, Leo, we want to give you a record deal. I said, they gave me some money, some nice money. Yeah. I leased, I leased that thing to him. The guy sent me yeah. the master that I, I leased it to him. Now there's an album will be out in October. Wow. It's called Another Side. Or, you know, like Another Side right. of Leo. Yeah. On, on, uh, on, uh, on In the Attic Records, man. So Crazy. Uh, yeah. So um, I'm trying to prepare for that, man. I got, look, I got Kimmel. I got uh, all these people I get, get, yeah. get. To. I got Kimmel. I got uh, my man. Uh, all these talk shows. I'm going to go on and, and, and do a song, do some songs from, from, from the album. Wow. And, uh, yeah. And are these yeah. original songs or these are like these yeah. are covers? Yeah. Originals. All originals, yeah. Wow. I mean, just the story, what I just told you. Yeah. Is enough yeah. to get on these shows. Absolutely. I'm talking about the do the song. Hey, Leo, come on, sit at the desk. Yeah, yeah. Tell me the story. Yeah, tell me about this. You hey, know, is there are these instrumental versions or no, they, no. no vocals? Okay, vocal. Yeah, lyrics. You know, and wow. It, it's, it's, so it's not quite, uh, not quite Merle Haggard country or Randy Travis country. Yeah. It's like the James Taylor kind of. Yeah. Country kind of soul, country kind of thing. Right, right, right. That I did, but it's completely contrary from what I was noted for back then and what yeah. I'm noted for now. Right, right. Man, I look forward to hearing that, man. Yeah, it's crazy, man. Crazy. I'm tripping on. I'd love to get you on the show again. You know, maybe after that album comes out, we'll come back. We'll get you back on. We'll talk. Thank you for having me. I'm gonna leave the audience with this. Something I live my to live my life by, and it's a phrase of, from this lady by the name of Maya Angelou. He said, when you get, give. And when you learn, teach. That's a beautiful thing, man. Perfect. That's a perfect ending. Thank you, Leo. Good night. Over and out. I want to thank Leo for joining us on the show today. One of my absolute favorite musicians of all time. Uh, before we go, I'm going to play possibly one of the most iconic guitar licks uh, ever performed. And this is the track called Sissy Strut by The Meters.
Eric Krasno Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 1111 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kraz. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email Kraz plus one at Gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Osiris.